When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the award-winning podcast, The Ambitious Entrepreneur Show, featuring business leaders to help you navigate a constantly changing marketplace. Want to become known as a trusted authority while building a thriving business you love? The Ambitious Entrepreneur Show will show you how. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Cross. And welcome to another episode of the Ambitious Entrepreneur Show brought to you by the Influence Alliance, the business building community for coaches and consultants who want to build a profitable, sustainable business. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Cross. Now, joining me on today's show is John Warrillow. John's best-selling book, Built to Sell, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011. In 2015, John wrote another best-selling book, The Automatic Customer. And John completes the trilogy with his latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business. Now, on today's show, John is specifically going to share how we need to build, accelerate and harvest company value, building with the end in mind and why subscribers are more valuable than customers. Welcome to the show, John. Good to be with you, Emery. I love that, uh, you know, in the books that we've just mentioned that you've written, there is a sequence. And as we know, when building a business the right way, there is a sequence as well, the right steps at the right time for your business model. And I know that you are going to uh, share more about that today. But I love to ask the question in a snapshot uh, way, Give us a bit of a, an overview of what led you down the path to where you are today. Because obviously, was entrepreneurship always something that attracted you? Well, yeah, I started my first business. It was a market research company years ago. Now, this goes back 20, 25 years. And we were a, uh, we, we grew into a fairly successful business. We had customers like uh, Microsoft. Uh, Telstra was a big client of ours. These very large organizations, big technology and telephone companies. And we did quantitative and qualitative market research. And, and we got up to about $5 million in revenue, $6 million in revenue, something like that. 20 30% profit margin. So good, good size customer, really great clients. And we always had the impression that, that we were, I was going to sell based on the client list, right? People would, would value the client list. And so I went to see a mergers and acquisitions professional, a guy who sells companies in Toronto, Canada. His name is Perry Mielli. I'll never forget, he's tortoise, tortoise sell glasses. And he, and he looked over his glasses at me and said, John, like, who does the selling? And I said, well, I'm involved in some of the selling. It's these big customers, Google, Microsoft, et cetera. He says, okay, well, who does the research? And I'm like, well, it's these massive companies. Of course, I'm involved in some of the research. And he said, okay, let me get this straight. You're doing the selling and the delivery, the research. There's nothing here I can sell. And I'm, I'm like, no, but Perry, we've got $5 million in revenue and all this profit and these great clients. Didn't I tell you we had these great clients? And he's like, no, there's nothing we can sell. It's, it's you. And I remember leaving his office. I walked into his office feeling like I had this tremendously valuable company. And I left feeling about that tall. <laughs> and uh, it was a real wake-up call for me. Again, this goes back 20 years or so. But it goes to show or it taught me I had been thinking about 
value wrong. I thought value uh, was determined by the revenue that we had, the profit that we had, or the client list that we had. And what I learned later was that for a company really to be valuable, it, it has to sort of be able to thrive without the owner. And, and that's where the journey started for me. I started to really understand this. Uh, ultimately, we made some big changes, moved to a subscription model, built the company so that it wasn't dependent on me. And actually, it was, it was acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listed company, big public company in America. So it had a happy ending. But the very beginning was uh, for the journey for me was that moment in Perry's office where I learned that really what I've been building all those years was, was virtually worthless. Yes. And so that kicked off this journey for me. I'm glad that um, I asked that question because it really sets up this show beautifully because many people who are listening and watching are solopreneurs. However, if they change the mindset and do what you're going to share, I mean, obviously we're going to scratch the surface here, but if they implement what you share, they can most likely build that business out the right way and be able to, to really see some scalability there because so many businesses, the reason they can't grow is because they're too involved in the business and they haven't created this entity that, as you say, can run without you and is obviously generating clients and there's profitability. So let's talk about building, accelerating and harvesting company value. When you talk about company value with that new mindset that Perry obviously prompted, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's really identifying something in your company that can be offered that does not rely on you personally to deliver. And this is particularly hard for coaches, consultants, anyone in the professional services arena where effectively they're selling their time. And it can be very difficult to figure out how would I structure? I mean, my clients want me, right? That's that's what most professional coaches, consultants say, they want me. And here's the thing, as long as they want you, your company isn't sellable. It doesn't valuable and it's hard to actually grow beyond one or two extra employees. And so what I think you need to do is discover your TVR. TVR stands for teachable, valuable, repeatable. And what that process entails is putting all the services that you provide as a coach or consultant or professional service provider today and scoring them on the degree to which they're teachable to employees, valuable to customers, and repeatable. Put all your services down. And what you're looking for is a service or some sort of offering that maximizes your score on those three attributes. And again, that can be hard for a lot of coaches. And so let me, let me give an example from the professional services arena. Cause I think it might, it might be stickier if I give you like a story of someone who's gone through this process. Uh, the guy's name I'm thinking of is Darren Root. He had an accounting firm based in Indiana in the United States. And like a lot of accountants, they were a professional services organization. They did lots of different stuff. So they did audits, they did bookkeeping, they did even technology integration. There was all kinds of stuff that they did. And Darren wanted to go through this process of really figuring out how does he build a professional services practice that isn't dependent on him. And he looked at all the different things that he offered and he discovered that there were these, these different items. They were reconciling bank statements, doing credit card processing, doing the payroll slips that were all relatively teachable, but not terribly valuable in the eyes of his customers. They were effectively commoditized. But then he said, what if I put these into a bundle and put a wrap around them? Would they be more valuable if effectively I could sell them to a customer, which would allow them to eliminate a full-time employee? 
If I could sell them for a fraction of what a full-time employee would cost, that would be valuable to customers. So that's what he did. He calls it the boss system, the back office support system. And effectively, it's those things. It's reconciling your bank statement. It's processing your credit card. It's doing your payroll. All the things that Nobody wants to do, quite frankly, but he offered a service called Boss, and he could train young accountants and bookkeepers to deliver the work. He could sell it because he branded it his himself. He branded it as a product, not as his own name, but it was a thing called Boss. And again, because he bundled them up and branded it, it went from individually being commoditized products to collectively being differentiated because here's why. His customers were doctors and dentists. And for them, they were effectively hiring office managers to do this work and who were underemployed. They weren't really full-time people, but he was paying them full-time. They were These doctors and dentists were paying them. And again, Darren reasoned that if they bought the boss system for pennies on the dollar, they could do the same thing that this full-time employee was doing. So it was incredibly valuable. And again, none of the boss services, reconciling bank statements, credit card statements, Darren isn't doing any of the work. He used to do all of the work as a professional service provider. Now he doesn't because he's gone through this TVR process. So that's the process that I would, I would encourage your listeners, in particular those who are professional services, coaches, consultants, to go through and start to identify a TVR in their business. Yeah, brilliant. What I love about that too is that not only does he have a market for, in his case, the, um, you know, the doctors and, and so forth and dentists, he also has another market for the new the newbies entering the accounting space who them themselves don't have what I would call a signature system and this sub-branded beautiful product. So they could come in, be licensed to also teach this. And so he could also generate a whole other, there's so many different opportunities that way, but I love the way that you've shared that because it really is diving deeper into the needs and the struggles and the outcomes that it's going to give our ideal clients and then packaging our services in a way that's deliverable without our, you know, input to be able to drive that. In, incredible. And then, of course, being able to get, get out there and share that. That's something else that many, I, I think, solopreneurs, businesses, in fact, being able to speak about it in a way that really can show our ideal clients that this is so valuable and is going to make a significant impact. I just did a podcast uh, just last week with a couple called the Kirpins who had a social media consultancy and they went through this process and billing from by the hour for projects to productizing in the way I'm describing into a, into a product. And part of that was getting off the hourly billing train and yes. moving to a token system. So now when people buy from their social media campaign, they're buying effectively tokens. And I asked them, why did you do that? He said, well, you know, we wanted to get away from selling time. But the other benefit of having this token system, and by the way, they would sell tokens, which were equivalent for a social media post. So a tweet might be one uh, token, a blog post might be five, a video might be 10, et cetera. And it was a way for them to sell their time in, in, a, in a different way. And I said, what were the benefits uh, of doing that? And he said, one of the hidden benefits, and this goes back to what you were just saying, Anne-Marie, is that it allowed our account managers to do some of the selling. When we were selling time, it was really just our time and everybody would you know, be scrutinizing our experience, wanting to know what we would personally do on their project. But all of a sudden you move the lingo or language to tokens, the account managers could sell, oh, you, you want some more blog posts? Well, 
we just need to sell you some more tokens or you want some more videos. We need to get you some more uh, tokens. And so, uh, you know, the other benefit of productizing in the way I'm describing part of it is productizing what you offer. The other is productizing how you bill. And again, moving off of hourly billing onto a, a token based or some sort of project based uh, billing is, uh, is another part of the process of building to sell. Uh, one of the things that I know that you want to share a little bit more about today, and I think is so very important and can completely change the mindset, the action steps, all of that, that a business then continues to follow and implement is build with the end in mind. To make sure that we're all on the same page, what do you mean about building with the end in mind? How can that help us? And what are some things that we need to consider when we are, when we do finally have our end in mind, some of the steps we may need to take? Look, I think you should know who the strategic acquirers are for your company from the very earliest days. And as you build your company, start to make decisions through a lens by which you ask, how would this impact their view of us, the strategic acquirers who we'd like to get acquired by? Is it going to make us more attractive or less attractive? Because I think a lot of us as entrepreneurs, especially ambitious ones, are all focused on top line revenue, right? We want to make the BRW 100. We want to make some list that, that acknowledges top line revenue growth, sales turnover, et cetera. Yet, I have found that even some of the most fast growing companies end up undermining their value because they don't think like an acquirer. I'll give an example. There's a guy named Michael Glazier I interviewed. Now, this goes back on Built to Sell Radio years ago, four or five years ago. He built this, a company called Golden Spoon. It was a frozen yogurt company. And he created a great recipe and sold it to the big national you know, grocery store chains in the United States. But he'd always sort of, in his mind, always wanted a retail location. Like he always wanted to be able to walk down the high street in a city and see his store in lights, his name and brand in lights. And so he built out 60 golden spoon locations all across the United States. And in so doing, he had to sell some of his equity because, man, it's really expensive to build a network of stores. He had incredible headaches associated with hourly workers, all these young people who were flaky and not showing up for work and he's dealing with schedules. It was like this entire spaghetti ball of mess that eventually led him to really just being burnt out and wanting to sell. We put his business on the market only to find out the acquirers didn't value the 60 stores he created. None of them wanted to buy his business because he had this weird appendage called retail distribution, and they weren't used to seeing that in an ice cream brand. What the market, the, the acquirers wanted was distribution in the big box grocery store chains. That's what they valued. They valued his brand, the formula he created, a better frozen yogurt, and the distribution he had at large grocery store chains. They ended up selling that business. Michael ended up selling that business for a fraction of what it was worth to a company who eliminated the 60 stores as soon as they bought the business. They just basically cut off that limb and said, close them all down. And had he not made that decision to chase that kind of retail distribution, he would have kept all of his equity. He wouldn't have had to raise money. Uh, he would have had a lot, much less stressful company, even though it's smaller, but a much less stressful journey. And that's just a, a little example of where not building from the end in mind can really turn out to, to bite you. So I would just, I would know from the earliest days, who are my natural strategic acquirers and what are they going to value? 
Mm. In that case, I mean, obviously that's a brilliant example. For someone who is thinking, you know what, I really have not done that. Can you share some insights as to where do you even go to find out this information? It's one of those, you know, things we don't know what we don't know. How would he, in the example, had even known who to go to to ask? Are there some strategic um, inquirers that you, you need to go and speak to in, in your specific industry? You know, obviously for the industry that clients are, or guests are, are watching. Um, share some insights because that can be the biggest um, you know, crossroads that if they yeah. don't get that right answer, the end in mind is going to be wrong for them. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, this M&A, mergers and acquisitions professionals refer to this as an investment thesis. Uh, you've heard of investment bankers, M&A professionals. They're all the same people from different names, different labels. They effectively sell companies, corporate finance professionals. They sell companies for a living. And they're the, among the most highly paid professionals in the workforce. It's not uncommon for a highly paid investment banker to make millions of dollars a year. And the reason they earn that kind of money is because they're able to think about investment theses. This is what they do. And so in short, the shortest answer to your question is get a great M&A professional if, if you can afford them. If you can't, what you've got to do is, is develop an investment thesis of your own. You've got to figure out what are the acquiring companies in your industry looking to go do? Let me give you another example. There's a company in the United States. I'm not sure if they have them in Australia called care.com. Are you familiar with care.com? It's like um, you plug in your postal code and it will give you a list of five-star rated babysitters in your, lo in your local market. And so a company like that, in the case of the United States, they had 7 million subscribers and they had listings. And one of the ways they wanted to monetize those listings was by pro uh, providing payroll service to the parents who hired the nannies and babysitters, no pairs. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a payroll service. There's a woman named Stephanie Breedlove who had a payroll service for parents of nannies. She built it up to $9 million of annual revenue. And she looked out in the universe and said, who would like to buy this company? And she realized 7 million subscribers at care.com needed payroll service. She was a $9 million business on just 10,000 customers. And so she approached care.com and said, man, you've got 7 million subscribers. They all need payroll service. If 1% if, of your 7 million subscribers buy payroll services from me, that's a company seven times my size today. Now imagine 2% buy or five or 10. You start to imagine the size and scale of the acquisition. Long story short, care.com acquired Stephanie Breedlove's payroll business for $54 million. Wow. It was a $9 million business at the time of the acquisition. That makes no sense on any sort of valuation table. That's six times revenue. But what that does is is really discount in the mind uh, when you think about it, what it's worth in cares hands is worth many multiples of that. And so really, that's the the secret and why M&A professionals get paid so much money is they're able to identify those investment theses. Yeah. Brilliant. And so we're a good place to start if you can't yet afford one. I'm sure some of them have uh, podcast interviews. Absorb those Go and do as much research as you can because one idea can take you down a road that, you know, you may not have. Uh, and that's the thing with entrepreneurship. We should always be looking at now but always looking at the future and being able to see where are things shifting. And I think what's really important for any business, you know, when they're building with the end in mind and the example that you gave about that gentleman who 
built the 60 stores. You don't want to build a business that is so heavy that there's no real agility to that, is there? I mean, that's one of the things businesses now, I'm sure around the globe because of what's happened, the businesses who've been able to pivot quickly, take advantage of the market are the ones that are going to find the uh, to, to grow and not be you know, um, so limited when things happen. Would you say that that's yeah. true? I agree hundred percent. And, and the word you use was so good agility. Here's the thing. The biggest mistake I think we make as entrepreneurs is we cross sell too many products and services, right? We've heard the marketing pundits that say it's eight times easier to find a sell a cross sell an existing customer, new product than it is to go find a new customer. Here's the problem. If you've got something, a product or service that really differentiates you and gets and wins you customers, and then you start cross-selling them additional services and products, chances are you're not very differentiated on those products and services. When an acquirer looks at a company, they're making a build versus buy decision. And they're going to say, why would we compete? Why wouldn't we just compete with this organization? Why would we buy them? And if you've got a bunch of me too products and services for which you're really commoditized, they're going to draw the conclusion that it would be much cheaper and faster to compete with you effectively on price than it would be to acquire you. Yet, if you've done something better than anybody else in the world, just one thing, they may draw the conclusion that, man, it would take years to build out that niche that they've created. Why don't we just buy this company? In the case of Stephanie Breedlove, the payroll provider, at $300,000 in turnover, it was just Stephanie and one employee. She reached a fork in the road where she was trying to figure out how to grow. And she had two avenues to choose from. One was to cross-sell her existing customers' new services. So she could have said, okay, busy parents who have a nanny, like what else do they need? Meal preparation services, snow removal services, you know, lawn care. I mean, all these things that busy parents need. Instead, she took the much more difficult road, which is to go find new parents who have a nanny to pay. Much, much more difficult. It took her 25 years to grow a $9 million company. But guess what? It was worth many, many multiples of the business she would have created had she just cross-sold a bunch of commoditized Me Too services. Yeah, makes complete sense, complete sense. As you said, build something that is so unique, an, an acquirer would say, we'd rather buy that than create yeah. that from scratch. Yeah. And it does. And that's one of the things, and, and one of the other things that I want to stress, and then I want to talk about why subscribers are more valuable than customers, mm, sure. is that I think any business, especially ambitious entrepreneurs, as you say, we we want to get results immediately. We are not often playing for the long game. You know, you're go you've got to think years ahead. And a lot of times in the beginning, you, you're still developing, you're still sorting out, you know, what is it that my ideal client is really wanting? And it will continue to evolve if you've got patience there, isn't it? If you've got patience there and you have to, you know, these stories of overnight successes. Yeah, but what about the, you know, the decade that they've been working on to build this to a point where it really hits the ground? Would you say that that's something that you encourage ambitious entrepreneurs, take the time to build this properly and to do the research? Absolutely. And again, the focus on one thing, if you're five products deep, 
mastering five products, the distribution, the delivery, the sales of five, 10, 15 products, it's going to take you decades and decades, right? You, you shorten the time that you can get to a differentiated offering and ultimately a successful company by being focused on one thing. And so, yeah, yeah I, I agree. One thing. I shared some, a post on that the other day with, uh, on LinkedIn and it hit some, um, yeah, it hit some, some, it hit some, hit some sweet spots. Yeah. We still oh, have yeah. the BRW 100 in Australia. I'm sure we do. Yes. Yeah. The BR. So fastest growing companies in Australia. 100. Yeah. Again, we have the list Inc. 5000 in the United States. It's. It's. And again, I think the the popular sort of narrative among entrepreneurs is you got to grow your top line revenue. That's what gives you a sense of ego, right? A sense of pride. Yeah. We hit a million. We hit five million. I've got five employees. I got 50 employees. Whatever. It's all this sort of like boastful, chest puffed out revenue stuff. Mm. And and I you know I subscribe to. And I think we all subscribe at Value Builder this notion that kind of revenue is vanity and value is sanity, right? It's much, much more uh, beneficial to have a little $2 million business with a finite, you know, very, very, very specific and targeted niche than it is to have a $20 million company selling a bunch of commoditized services and products. Yeah, so much sense. So much sense. All right. Why, John, are subscribers more valuable than customers? Well, first of all, acquirers value subscribers and subscription revenue at a multiple of what they do transaction revenue. So right now, uh, security businesses are being rolled up all across the world. Security companies are the guys who do, you know, you install your security system, your home, your office, you wire up the sensors and the windows. And if someone breaks in, they call the police department or the fire engine if there's a fire. These companies have transaction revenue and they have monitoring revenue. The transaction revenue is the revenue they get when they install the system. And then the monitoring revenue is the revenue that you, that, you know, we pay the $29, $39 a month to monitor the system. Mm-hmm. Typical acquirer today will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and almost $3 for every dollar of monitoring revenue. Said another way, you're recurring revenue in the case of security is about $4 for every dollar of installation revenue, your, 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 uh, your recurring revenue is worth about four times more. So it, it, it valued, it's, it's, tr- it's much, much highly valued by acquirers. And a lot of people hear me say that and say, oh, but John, you don't understand. We're not a software company, right? We're a professional services organization. We're a coaching firm. We're an accounting firm. We're a you know, distribution company. We're a retailer. And, and, and that's why I wrote The Automatic Customer. I wanted to make the case in that book that no matter what industry you're in, you can create some recurring revenue and it will have a material impact on the value of your company. I'll give you an example, one that I, you know, I love. It, it comes from the business of selling flowers. Flowers are like, I don't know, have you ever looked at this, Amory? Have you ever looked at the, the economics of selling flowers? No, I haven't. It's a brutal business. Like Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, and at least in the United States, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia. Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, two days of the year, like 30% of revenue gets generated in those two days. So you're left the other 363 days of the year trying to figure out how to sell flowers. You have to have really expensive office space, usually you know high street space in a concourse of a bank tower or retail space. It's very expensive. Um, and the worst part about flowers is when the farmer cuts the stem, it starts to die. Your inventory is rotting in the fridge after a month. Typical flower store throws out 60% of its inventory every single month because they guess wrong, right? So two guys come along, Brian Burkhart and Sonia Panda, and they're like, we wanna be in the business of selling flowers, but we wanna sell on a subscription model. We wanna sell recurring 
subscription contracts. And so they looked at all the people who buy flowers, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, weddings, funerals, you know, all this stuff. And they identified there was one segment that had a recurring need for flowers, and that was hotels. Because hotels, especially kind of fancy hotels, they want to give that sort of boutique image on the reception table, right? So every two weeks, they want to get rid of the old flowers and put a new bouquet of flowers. Well, they don't want their general manager taking time away from the hotel to get the fresh cut flowers every week. And so they sold a subscription to flowers to hotels. Wow. The average lifetime value of an H Bloom subscriber is more than $4,500 compared to the average transaction in a flower store of around $50. Not only that, I mentioned the spoilage rate in a flower store, typically 60% every single month. At H Bloom, their spoilage rate is less than 2%. Why? Because they know that the W in Sydney wants roses and the Marriott in Adelaide wants carnations. And they only buy the number of flowers that they have customers to fulfill. Yeah. Well, and that's so like right through even to their supply chain because they've got a standard order that comes through so they can, you know, bargain with them too. I mean, that impacts. Brilliant. Brilliant. And, and here's the hidden thing. When you know the lifetime value of a customer, when you feel in your gut and you know on paper that you can quantify and say, we're going to win over the lifetime $4,500 worth of revenue from this one customer. Yes. Guess what? It allows you to invest in salespeople. Not only now do you have to just rely on people showing up at your retail flower store. Now you can go and hire kids at a university and pay them a, a fair wage and a commission to go call on hotels. And now all of a sudden the economics of a business totally changed because you've got a sales force influencing hotels. You can afford to pay the sales rep $500 or $1,000 for every hotel they sign up because you know you're going to get four or five times that when in, in value. So it, it, again, it, I think the recurring revenue model is the secret sauce to driving up and accelerating the value of just about any business, even a retailer. Yeah. And, you know, when you're thinking of professional services, coaches and consultants, there's a couple of things within that. I mean, we've heard of membership programs and so forth. Sure. One of the things when you're thinking about building the end in mind is doing what the accountant did. Obviously, build out, you know, make sure what you're offering and the services and your knowledge is what is required, but is also teachable. You can teach it to someone else. So it's teachable, 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 and then start to remove yourself from the face of the company so that you are not the face, if that makes sense, so that you've got other team members. Because as you start to separate yourself from that, that membership then, the, the entire business can then be sold to someone else who really values that, who has similar level of expertise. Does that make sense? That then can then be sold, can't it, to someone who does not necessarily want to take five, ten years to build this up or whatever it is. That would be something Absolutely. to consider, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And again, it, I think you raised the point right out of the beginning, which is which is naming conventions of your company and indeed your membership program or your you know uh, mastermind organization or whatever. Again, I think you want to make sure that it doesn't include your surname in the name. So don't make it around you personally, because you may come to a point in time where you want to make a transition. Yeah. And, and if it, if your surname is in the name of the mastermind or the membership organization, 
you know, that's that, that can undermine its transferability to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I share a story and uh, when I, this particular podcast, there was a time where I put it on hold. I, and actual fact, I said, I'm not going to publish it anymore. But because it had been listed, you know, in the top this and top that some, for some time, award-winning and so forth, I had people that messaged me and said, would you consider selling that? I mean, I'd never in a million years thought that there'd be people that were interested. I mean, obviously there would have had to be conversations around and what that would look like but the fact that people even thought of an interest because you can imagine it would have taken someone years often and even now longer because there's so yeah. many voices being added to reach Again. that kind of level of um you know visibility and and reach yeah. yeah, look at look at your five star ratings. You've got a ton for ambitious entrepreneur, and so people that takes years to develop, right? You've got SEO juice, right? Uh, all your back catalog of episodes, you can't recreate that overnight, but you could if you acquire an ambitious entrepreneur. So I, I think you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a transferable asset in particular because it doesn't necessarily depend on you to deliver, and it's got yeah. an audience, and it's got a uh, a rating and an SEO juice, and all those things are are contributing to your value for sure. What we need to consider, and I think often is as ambitious entrepreneurs, we don't actually see the opportunities that are there. And as you so beautifully reminded us, when you start with the end in mind, and sometimes it's exploring what is possible. And often if we don't know, go and listen to podcasts, go and, you know, speak to John, get his books. And by the way, I've got a banner here that is scrolling, builttosell.com forward slash ambitious. I believe you've got some um, some information, some gifts. Do you want to share a little bit more, John, about how people can um, get access to you, share a little bit about what is in this builttosell.com forward slash ambitious and how they can connect with you? Yeah, builttosell.com slash ambitious is where we put together a whole set of assets. So you'll get an eight-part video series on the value drivers that we look at. You'll also get a checklist on the nine subscription models. So if you're interested in kind of maybe discovering which subscription model that you might want to choose in your consultancy, your coaching practice, we've got the checklist as well as there is a, a sister companion to the art of selling your business physical book. There's a an electronic ebook that people can use uh, to apply the lessons in the book. They're meant to be used together, but you'll also get the ebook. It's all free. Uh, it's a, sort of a package of goodies and you can get it just builtthesell.com slash ambitious. Yeah, fantastic. And is that the best way to connect? Are there other ways that um, you want to uh, um, share and, and direct them to? Yeah, no, I think just builttosell.com slash ambitious is the place to start. And then you'll be opted in. You'll get our weekly uh, email with a new episode of Built to Sell Radio, my podcast. Uh, you'll get webinar invitations, a bunch of things you'll get from that. So that's probably the best place to go. Fantastic. Well, John, thanks once again for coming on the show. I've absolutely loved it. And uh, you've given me some food for thought as well. It's one of the things, <laughs> one of the reasons I love this podcast is because I get Thank to hang out with awesome, uh, you know, businesses such as yourself and experts as well. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing uh, your insights today. Thanks, Amory. It was a pleasure.
And before we go, just another tip, especially if you want to build your reach, your revenue, and obviously your reputation. Maybe you're putting in the work, but you're just not getting the results you'd hope for. Please do not give up. As the conversation today on the podcast, it can take time. And if we use the analogy of a farmer, you need to remember these two very important things. The seeds that you plant today are going to bear fruit down the track. And sometimes it can even be three months, six months. I know when I was in the career industry, there were people who are on my list getting my newsletter for years before they made a move. And you should be planting seeds daily to build the momentum that you need to be consistently harvesting your fruit. Just a couple of things to consider. Have you carefully selected the right ground? Are you properly tilling and preparing that ground before you plant? You Are you using the right seeds for that specific area of that ground? And this, of course, is all an analogy for the offering, the, pot, the platform that you are spending time to reach out to your ideal clients. But of course, what you do need is to be clear on your message, your offering to make sure your ideal clients need that and have the correct strategies and actions in place to ensure that the work that you put in are going to bear you fruit. Now, by the way, if this is something that you're struggling with, reach out to our email address and we'll book a time for a chat, help at annemariecross.com. That's help at annemariecross.com. This podcast is brought to you by TheInfluenceAlliance.com. Want to influence real change with your message by becoming known as a trusted authority in your industry while building a sustainable and scalable business you love? Find out how by accessing our free podcast series at www.TheInfluenceAlliance.com forward slash podcast series. That's TheInfluenceAlliance.com forward slash podcast series. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.